praise you and thank you for your plan. And then thank you that you have included us in a community, in a family, and then in a larger community around us, and then in a church family. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that uh, the power of your spirit gives us the ability to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. We pray today that you would teach us, that you would guide us, and that we would go from here, that we would be changed because of this encounter with you and with your word this morning. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Notice in verse 1 how David starts out, Behold, he's wanting us to look. He wants us to pay attention, is that word. He says, How good and how pleasant. Good and pleasant. Who doesn't want a life that is good and pleasant? It is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Of course, in the historical setting, uh, the ancient Israelites, they wouldn't move too far from their birthplace, would they? Now, we, in the 21st century, especially in the West, we can move all over the world, basically, and we can be well uh, separated from our loved ones and from people that we knew when we were growing up. But in this day and age, brothers would probably live relatively close and help share the farming responsibilities or whatever their trade was. And uh, so this is addressed kind of to brothers, but it means the sisters too. It means male and female, that we would dwell together in unity. It seems like he's saying that you're going to dwell someplace. And do you want to dwell in a place that is, has no harmony, has a lot of adversity, difficulty, and arguing? Or would you rather live in a place that is unified, that they're all on the same page? It is good and pleasant How wonderful and beautiful when brothers and sisters get along is how it's translated. The psalm puts into song what was said and demonstrated throughout Scripture, as we've seen already, and the church community, and it's essential for survival, if you will. Scripture knows nothing of the solitary Christian. People of faith are always members of a community in Christ. Whether you believe it or not, you are. God works in and through individuals. He never works in them individually in isolation, but always with people in community. You know, that one proverb, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. And so I value people who sharpen my life. You know, sometimes it's painful, but I need to hear those things. And if I were in isolation, just watching church on TV or on the Internet, I would not have that kind of contact, that dwelling together. There is proximity to one another in this first verse, and that is the praise of unity. And David is praising this unity. It could be, it's difficult to date this psalm, but it could be after David consolidated his monarchy there in Jerusalem, after the, the old, all the issues with Saul and his family, and, and the people finally rallied around David, and there was peace for the first time in a long time. And there was unification of the nation under the kingship of David, under God himself. And so this could have been written at that time. So he's praising the unity. He's experiencing it. And any time you've experienced it, whether it's in your own family, in a small group Bible study, in a church family, it is a blessing. It is good and pleasant. And then he illustrates it with two pictures. They're really metaphors. If you look in verse 2, it says, it is like. And then again in verse 3, it is like. He is illustrating. He's painting a picture for us of what this unity looks like. Unity, first of all, in verse first part of verse 2, is a gift from God. We're going to learn four elements about community in this psalm. The first one, this first element, is it's a gift from God. Look again at verse 2. 
It is like the precious oil upon the head, and we see later, even on Aaron's beard. Aaron was the high priest of Israel, and if we were to turn to Exodus chapter 29 and 30, we'd see the installation of the priests of Israel. We call it the Aaronic tribe, the Aaronic ministers or priests. And it says there in Exodus 29, 7 and 9, Then you shall take anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. In the Old Testament, the picture of oil, especially anointing somebody with oil, is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. It is a picture of the blessing of God. It is a distinctive in the Old Testament that oil pictures what God is doing in our midst. And the New Testament church, that is the distinctive that distinguishes us from Old Testament Israel. The church is different. You ask why? Because now every believer in Jesus Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are anointed, if you will, with the oil of the Holy Spirit. It's a figurative sense. If you'll turn back with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 4, of course, the Apostle Paul here is... uh, Chapter 4 is the, is the high point. It's the, the summit of what it means to be the church in the New Testament. At the beginning of that chapter, Ephesians 4, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He's talking about a lifestyle, how we live out our lives. And he tells us in verse 2, With all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Then verse 3 is the key verse. Do not forget verse 3. For being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice we don't have to pray for unity. We don't have to beg for unity. It's already provided in the power of God's Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit indwells you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, according to Paul in Corinthians, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, which is an amazing thing in itself. And the Holy Spirit cannot be divided. God cannot be divided. And so if there is disunity in your life, you've got to look at your own attitudes, your own actions, and decide, am I the problem or is it really the other person? Or maybe it's both people when there is disunity. Because the unity is existing in the power of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life. And we are to be diligent there. That means working by the sweat of your brow because sometimes it does take a lot of hard work blood, sweat, and tears to maintain the unity in a family, in a church family, in the arena in which you function. So unity is a gift of God. We are all sinners saved by grace if you're a believer in Christ. And one of the sad marks of sin is that it separates. It creates disharmony and hostility. It takes God to overcome sin And bring harmony again. All real unity, at least all lasting unity, is from heaven above. It is by Jesus Christ. Then look at, uh, so he's talking about oil upon a beard, on a head. And then he goes down. And I want you to notice in verse 2, second part, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. And he uses that term in verse 3, coming down again. And so it's like this blessing Three times he uses that poetic phrase in this little psalm. And it reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 17. 
Let me read that for you. James chapter 1, verse 17. I'll get there. There it is. Okay. Where James writes in James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down. Isn't that interesting? Same translation. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All these good things. This unity is a gift of God. And the second uh, thing we see is unity flows from one person to another. That's what it means, this coming down. It comes on Aaron's beard, over his head, on his beard. Literally, they would do this, and then it came down on the edge of his robe. This anointing, this anointing oil that they would pour was like a perfume. In fact, it's called the perfume in Exodus chapter 30 and elsewhere. But the anointing was a blessing from God. He was the high priest who in turn blessed others. And that was a picture, this perfume. It would run down his beard and onto his, his tunic, onto his uh, sacred clothes there, his robes. And if you were within a certain distance from him, you would smell that perfume and the wonder of it all. And it would come down. And anywhere he went, it would perfume the air. And this was a special calling of the priest that he would be a blessing and bless others around him. In the same way, you and I, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called believer priests. We don't need to go through a great high priest here on earth because we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ in heaven. And he intercedes for us. He knows the Holy Spirit helps us pray. But we are all priests. We don't have to set up a special time to come into this building and confess our sins to some guy in a box. We go directly to Jesus Christ. We go directly to the throne of God the Father. And so as priests, we are standing in the New Testament age, in the church age, like Aaron was standing there before Israel. He was the priest for Israel. And you are the priest in your life. And it's called the believer priest, the priesthood of believers. And so this flowing from person to person, think about it. This person next to you, if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they're a priest too. And the perfume of what God has anointed you with his Holy Spirit should pour out and roll out and touch other people's lives. Again, that takes proximity. That takes dwelling with one another. It comes down, it comes down, as God has told us. So the unity flows from one person to another. As we be diligent to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit, it shows and God will use that as it flows out from person to person. The third thing, not only is it a gift from God, it flows out, it's for everyone. It is for the small and great alike. And this is the second picture we see in the first part of verse 3 where it says, it is like, again, that's, a, that's an indicator, a structural indicator that he's going to describe and illustrate something. He says this unity, when it's there, it's good and pleasant, verse 1. It's like precious oil, verse 2. Verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion. Now, Mount Hermon is one of the tallest mountains in the Mideast, mid but it is 223 miles north by northeast of Jerusalem. Because yeah, Jerusalem is where Mount Zion is, and Mount Zion's about 2,500 feet in elevation above sea level. But Mount Hermon was 9,500 some odd feet above sea level. And it was a picture of how the dew flows down upon Mount Hermon. It also rains down upon Mount Zion. 
Of course, in the dry Middle East, any moisture is something that people really want and really desire. It is a refreshing thing. When you think of dew in the morning, it's refreshing. And this image of Mount Hermon uh, was the fact that they knew about it, and they knew that dew fell, but it also came down uh, on Mount Zion. So it comes down, unity is for small and great alike. Unity is not reserved for some special class of Christians in this church. Unity is for all of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. He provides the unity for you to get along with everyone else around you. He will give you the power. It, uh, one commentator said uh, about this, this passage here about the dew. It was on large Mount Hermon and uh, small Mount Zion. It's not the refreshing nature of the dew, nor its gentle, all-pervading influence, which is a prominent feature, that which renders it to the poet's eyes so striking an image of brotherly concord is the fact that it falls alike on both mountains. You don't have to go to a special place to receive this blessing of unity. So when a country or a church, or even a family is at peace. It benefits not only the most prominent and the most important people, but also everyone else. All are blessed, especially the small and unimportant and the weak. Likewise, disharmony hurts everyone. You look at our current political scene, and it's nothing but disharmony and friction and adversity. And it is just a pain for all of us, you know, and how this is going. But the fact is, is that when we can do what our part is, is to make sure that we are unified with one another. It starts to change and flow out from there. You know, uh, God is so concerned about community. How does this apply to the church? How does this apply? Uh, In the New Testament, you know, Jesus prayed for you. Did you know that? In chapter 17 of the book of John, Jesus is called the high priestly prayer, but he prayed for you and for me. He prayed this prayer. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. He's referring to his disciples at that time. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Okay, he's praying for you in that prayer right there. He knew as God that you were going to exist. He knew exactly where you would be, what you would do. He knew all those things. Isn't it amazing? the infinite power and capabilities and the exhaustive foreknowledge of God. And he prays, continues this prayer, Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So we portray, we are a showcase of the unity, the triunity of God himself. We are the showcase of what God has done in our lives. And part of that showcase is the unity we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not an artificial or enforced unity. You know, there's a difference between uniformity and unity. Those of you who have been in the military, you know what uniformity is. What do they do? They shave your head, give you all the same clothes, and yell at you, right? At least that was in the old days, maybe not so much now. Uh, But, uh, you know, that's not what the Christian church and life is. It's not uniform, but it is unified. There is much diversity, even within this room. 
There is much diversity in our backgrounds, our education, our understanding, our lives, what we do, our skills, all of that, and yet we can be unified around the cause of Christ. And so we look at this, and if you go with me to the book of Acts, let me illustrate it in the book of Acts. There's a model church for us. It's called the New Testament church. Remember in Acts chapter 2, that was the day of Pentecost. That's when the 120 were gathered in the upper room, and God in his power, the Holy Spirit came upon them, indwelt these believers, and they started testifying of what God was doing. And then many people wondered, what is going on here? This is miraculous. This is awesome. This is amazing. In fact, some thought they were all drunk, according to the passage here in Acts chapter 2. And yet Peter preached this magnificent sermon, and it says 3,000 came to faith that very day. 3,000 souls were saved. But look at verse 42. This is the key to understanding what the model of a New Testament church is. The model church, look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Jesus Christ is building his church. This early model is the model, the format that we try to follow here at Grace Point Church. The most striking thing is their commitment to one another, to fellowship, which means unity. Fellowship is holding something in common. We talk about having a fellowship hall, and we have a fellowship around coffee and dessert, but yet really fellowship, that word koinonia, is about being in Christ, unified in him. It means common participation in God. And it is that is what drew these early Christians together. There are four specific elements in this passage in Acts chapter 2 about the church. First of all, they were noticed they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, the word of God. They were in the word of God. Real unity or community is established only around a common set of convictions and beliefs. You know, if we don't have the same convictions and beliefs about the word of God, we cannot be unified in what God is doing in our midst. And that's what drew these believers together in their fellowship was a common devotion to the teaching of the apostles. They believed in God's word and they wanted to be devoted to it. And think about this. Now, if I would have been there, I might have been tempted to say, oh, man. That day of Pentecost, that was amazing. They had things that looked like flames on their heads, and they were speaking in foreign languages, and there were people from all over the world. It was incredible. Let's go back and do that again. Let's just do that again. And <clears throat> but they didn't do that, did they? They pressed on in what God had for them. They didn't focus on the past. Some people like to focus on the past, and our history is important. Don't get me wrong there. History is important. We can learn from it, but we don't live there. We focus on today and what God has for us in the future, like these new believers did in Jerusalem. And they aren't partying about yesterday, but they're looking forward and they're starting to celebrate what the Word of God is doing then and what he's going to do in the future. So devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, and by the way, I might suggest that that is the first sign of a Spirit-filled church. The first sign of a church that is full of the Holy Spirit is the fact that they are always devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God. This is... 
uh, so incredibly important. It's the learning church that grounds its experiences in scriptures and tests them by the word of God. We live in an age where feelings are everything. Our emotions are everything. I don't feel like it. I don't like that. I, don't, I do like this, this, and this. Well, feelings do not make the decision. It's the conscious act of the will to learn what God's word says and apply, allow him to apply it in our lives. So first of all, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's why we hold the Bible up high here at Grace Point. That's why we spend time going expositorily through a book of the Bible or portions of the Bible. Secondly, notice in that verse, they were devoted, continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Love of the scriptures led believers to love one another also which meant as they allowed God's word to apply in their lives, they would express this genuine love and they would live in community in unity and be devoted to one another and care for one another. We see this later as they had deacons who took care of the concerns of the, of the, of the widows and those who had material needs. So devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to fellowship. Thirdly, they were devoted to the worship of God, breaking of bread and to prayer. The early church, the breaking of bread and to prayer, it was referring to the Lord's table. It was, uh, stands for this communion service. And interestingly, in the Greek language in which this was written, it's not just any kind of prayer, but it is to the prayers. There's an indicator that they had congregational prayer when they would get together, which we do from time to time. The Christians devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to the Lord's table and prayers, and they got together and praised God and prayed to him. And then fourthly, they expressed their faith. Notice down in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking of bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so there was an expression of their faith. Notice earlier, they, they met the material needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. But they'd met in the temple courts, so they met publicly. Remember, they didn't have a building to meet in. And uh, the court of the Gentiles, there could be tens of thousands of people meeting there, and they chose to meet there, and that's where they worshipped. But they also went house to house. They had formal worship, and that uh, formal worship included breaking of bread and prayer, whether it was in a public venue or in their homes as they gathered together. And then notice what God did at the end of verse 47. It said, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that takes us back to Psalm 133, that last verse, verse, the end, or last stanza, the last stanza of verse 3. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. Of course, there means Mount Zion. It means God's representative and symbolic of God's very presence in the nation. But unity is a preview or a foretaste of life forever. What we enjoy here on earth is just a preview of what life everlasting with Jesus Christ will be like. There, though, we will be perfectly unified in him. So we look at the end of this psalm and look forward to life forevermore that he has promised here. And this heavenly Zion, Hebrews speaks of Zion as a place of joyful assembly, Hebrews 12, 22. It's an enduring city, Hebrews 13, 14. In the book of Revelation, it is called the New Jerusalem, in which everything will be perfect, where Jesus Christ reigns day and night. And there will be no sin, no tears, no evil, no pain, no death. And there will be no disharmony. Can you imagine that? A place where there's not one sin 
And God's redeemed people will be for God's glory and the glory of the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ. I remember growing up in the church, even though I was just a little pagan, uh, I remember they would sing a song at the end of communion in the church I grew up in, and it was, Blessed be the tithe, excuse me, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Those words are an anticipation of the perfect future that ahead of us until the day it will cause us to seek and maintain the unity that God calls us to and provides for us in this time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this word. Thank you for blessing us with the psalmist David and for these words. Even though it's short, it is just packed full. We pray, Lord, that we would look for and recognize that we can have goodness and pleasantness when we dwell together in unity, and it will honor and glorify you and be a blessing to those around us. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing our last song together?
had to get my instructions. Okay. Um, one thing I want to point out is we are a church that believe in multi-generational ministry. I've seen churches, especially in urban areas, which I call market, market segmentation churches, which focus on one generation, and usually the younger generation. And we're glad you're here. If you're younger, thank you for being here. But this worship team is a representative of multi-generational ministry. We have a grandfather and a granddaughter and a mother and so forth. You figure out the relationships here, but it's just wonderful. And I think it's a picture of what God's going to be doing in heaven. There's multiple generations, although some say we're all going to be 33 years old in heaven. I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to uh, give you this benediction. Remember, it's not wishful thinking. It's a blessing to you. And uh, then I'll send you out. So listen out of the book of James. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Amen and amen. Go in God's grace and blessing and have a great day. You are dismissed.